Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I thought I had a kind of working understanding of the ground rules of American politics, which Trump blew up. So do we really need to understand people sympathetically how they were able to reconcile Donald Trump making fun of a disabled reporter? He did that at the very beginning of his political career and that people were okay with that. That's Jelani Cobb. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker and the Ira A. Lippman Professor of Journalism at Columbia University. Cobb, a historian by training, has written extensively about politics, race, and culture. And he recently helped produce a pair of frontline documentaries, one on police reform, the other on voter suppression. He joins me this week to discuss how Joe Biden won, the debate around police reform, and the lessons learned from the Obama presidency. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Daniel in New York. Dear Preet, AG Barr has found no evidence of widespread election fraud in the election. Does this mean Barr is throwing the towel in? Doesn't seem like he's putting up much of a fight. Well, that's an interesting question, Daniel. You're referring to an interview that Bill Barr did this week with the AP in which he made a very deliberate statement. And he's a pretty deliberate guy. And he parses words very carefully. He doesn't use them casually. And he said the DOJ has found no evidence of widespread election fraud that would change the outcome of the election, which is interesting for him because, as I'm sure you've heard me say over the past number of months, Bill Barr was looking like he was laying a foundation for the president to be able to claim massive fraud. In fact, in a widely noted interview with Wolf Blitzer of CNN a couple of months ago, Bill Barr speculated without any evidence and admittedly without any evidence that foreign nations could send thousands of absentee ballots in to the United States which would constitute significant fraud. So it's a bit of a turnaround for him. We also talked about the fact that Bill Barr, contrary to many decades of policy, was authorizing investigations related to election activity even before those elections were certified, the results were certified, which led somebody in the Public Integrity Unit at DOJ to resign from that position in protest. So as I said a second ago, it's quite an about face. And I guess the, the significance of it is, given what we know about Bill Barr, given his prior statements about election fraud, given what he must understand to be the disposition and temperament of his boss, the president of the United States, it's quite a significant statement and deserved all the attention it got. It also marks a very significant break with another Trump ally, Rudy Giuliani, who along with Jenna Ellis issued a scathing statement about Attorney General Bill Barr. So I don't have much nice to say about Bill Barr in recent months, but I thought this was an important statement and it helps put to rest all this speculation and frenzy and nonsense about the election being stolen from Donald Trump. This next question comes from Twitter user at Putin underscore comrade. Putin comrade. Maybe I won't answer your question. 
All right. Hashtag ask Preet. Preet, can you speak about the way Biden might go about replacing the U.S. attorneys in his new administration? What are the criteria he might use to select a new set of U.S. attorneys? Well, the perennial question, or I guess the quadrennial question always is, what does a new administration do with respect to U.S. attorneys? You will remember that in my case, four years ago, I had every expectation that I would leave because a new administration of a different party was coming in. Donald Trump asked me to stay, unusual thing, and then he ended up firing me under circumstances that I think are well known to you. My guesses are the following. One, that the Biden administration will not summarily fire everyone and ask them to leave by 5 p.m. on a particular day. There needs to be some continuity in some of these offices. Some people might go sooner than others, but the general practice has been there's an understanding that U.S. attorneys appointed by prior presidents take some time to leave. Some of them will leave right away. And in many cases, there's a period of weeks or months where the baton is passed to the next generation of United States attorneys. The other prediction I'll make is that the new set of U.S. attorneys will be far more diverse. There'll be more women. There'll be more people of color. The Trump batch of United States attorneys was singularly white and male, maybe the least diverse set of federal prosecutors in a generation or more. And finally, I want to remind you that unlike some other positions, the position of U.S. attorney is typically one that is recommended by the local U.S. senators in the state. So in states where there is at least one Democratic senator, because Joe Biden is a Democrat, the White House will largely defer to the recommendations made by that U.S. senator. In states where there are two Republican senators, they might run the candidate by those senators or otherwise defer to a prominent congressional Democrat in that state, which sometimes happens. But those selections will be made by the White House. But in the other states with Democratic senators, as was true in New York, the recommendations will be made by the home state senators. And those recommendations are almost always deferred to. This question comes from Twitter user at Yergeshe. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Who writes, too bad you missed my Ask Preet a month ago. I asked specifically about the possibility that Trump will sell what's left of his political power to the highest bidder after the elections. Just saying. So obviously this listener is talking about the pretty shocking breaking news from earlier this week that there is a ongoing federal investigation looking into a potential bribery for pardon scheme involving presidential pardons. And unlike some other things that get reported in the news, this is not speculation. This is not hearsay. The evidence of this comes directly from a document signed by a federal district court judge in D.C., Judge Beryl Howell. And the document in question, which actually dates back to the end of August, is a memorandum and order relating to prosecutors' attempts to look at material that is possibly attorney-client privilege on a couple of different grounds. One, the crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege, and the other, that the privilege doesn't really apply because the materials that are in question here are not covered by the attorney-client privilege. That's a long way of saying that the Department of Justice has itself announced at least to this judge, in what had been a secret document, that there was such an investigation going on. And the judge, in her wisdom, did not allow the DOJ, the government, to continue to maintain these documents under seal. Some may ask, well, why is it coming out now after the election? Why didn't it come out before the election? Is there some interest that the judge has in making it public? You know, my view is judges in the federal system and the state system believe very strongly in the principle that court proceedings should be open. And only if there are very, very good reasons harm to witnesses, harm to an investigation, or some other such compelling reason, documents should be made available. They should be largely unredacted if possible. And we don't conduct our court proceedings and our trials in secret. It's not the Soviet Union. It's the United States of America. That said, we don't know a lot because this memorandum and opinion is quite redacted. What we do know is the government has claimed two distinct schemes. One, which they characterize as a lobbying scheme for pardons, and the other, bribery for pardons. 
We know also it's been going on for some months. We know it's a significant investigation. The government has clearly attached a lot of resources to the investigation. They have a trove of evidence. Don't know if it will lead to charges with respect to bribery for pardons or not. But the government told the judge that they have exploited 50-some-odd digital devices, including iPads, laptops, iPhones, etc. There's nothing in the document that suggests, per your tweet, that President Trump knows about it, had anything to do with it, or that anybody in the White House was open and receptive to it. Could be the case. Could not be the case. By the way, this news comes at the same time as the New York Times reports that as recently as some days ago, Rudy Giuliani, the everywhere personal lawyer to Donald Trump, has had discussions with the president about a preemptive pardon for himself. Remember, there has been reporting that the Southern District of New York, my old office, has been investigating Rudy Giuliani on a number of issues. And by the way, there's also reporting, as of Tuesday night, that President Trump is thinking about giving preemptive pardons to his children as well. And also, as we've discussed, perhaps to himself, even though that's almost certainly not lawful. So even though we don't know yet what the president will do with respect to Giuliani or his children or himself or his involvement in this potential bribery scheme, we do know one thing. He has made it clear that he is prepared to pardon people who are close to him. He's prepared to pardon people who may not deserve it. He's prepared to pardon people by going around circumventing the pardon attorney process, the office of the pardon attorney, which has historically been a watchdog in this practice, even though the president has wide berth to pardon almost anyone he wants because the constitution gives him that power. There still has historically, though there have been some bad pardons, of course, There's been some regularity and some process and some vetting of these pardons. That's all out the window with President Trump. And it tells you something else. A culture has been created in which many, many people who are in the position to want or need a pardon believe that it's sellable to them, whether they're mistaken or not. The president, I think, deserves some responsibility for creating the impression in the minds of some folks, maybe the people involved in this scheme, that, hey, pardons are not taken so seriously. Pardons come to those who have some connections. The president is into politics. The president is into having money for his campaign. And if I do something for him, because he's a quid pro quo kind of president, witness the Ukraine debacle, if I do something for him, maybe he'll do something for me. So we'll follow the story and see what happens. But expect week after week until January 20th for there to be some pardons or talk of pardons that we'll be discussing. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, They can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. (laughs) 
Jelani Cobb is my guest this week. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker and a professor at the Columbia Journalism School. Cobb recently helped produce a frontline documentary called Policing the Police, and he spent years writing about police accountability. Today, we talk about what is holding back real police reform, Joe Biden's path to the presidency, and whether the media should try to understand Trump voters. Jelani Cobb, welcome to the show. Thank you. How was your Thanksgiving? You were telling me a little bit about it before we started taping. Well, it was interesting because we didn't travel and nobody came over. And so it is, I mean, just kind of the essence of what people say is just like family being together. But it was a very, I don't know what you would say, like discreet you know, kind right. of grouping. Did you eat a lot? You can, you can say yeah, I, I don't, only I don't, hundreds I don't, of thousands of people will know. I don't even want to talk about it. It was a disgusting <laughs> spectacle. That's what Thanksgiving is for. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. But I will tell you, I will say this. I will say this. There's like a pie shop. I don't know if you can like advertise or whatever. You yeah, go ahead. Their name. There's this pie place called Pietisserie, which is in Oakland. And uh, I was raving about like how much I love their pies. And I did a documentary with Frontline. I did two documentaries with Frontline this year. Yeah, we're going to talk about them. Yeah, and as we were rapping, you know, I, I was going on about these pies. And so just very kindly, the people at Frontline sent me two of their pies as a kind of thank you parting gift at the end of the documentaries. I mean, I got them the week of Thanksgiving. What kind they of pies? The most amazing pies ever. They don't even sound like combinations that you would like typically think of. One was a raspberry pie with a chocolate crust, and the other was a pumpkin pie with a chocolate crust. Oh, my God. Do you want to take a moment and savor it? I just want to have a moment to reflect on it. All right, it, let's, let's think about the pies. <laughs> yeah. then, we got, then we got, well, let me ask you this. While you were stuffing your face on Thanksgiving, did you take the day off from the news and politics, or were you still engaged that day? You know, it's involuntary, you know, so it's try. I tried to check in like periodically. Meaning every five minutes? And I, you know, every five minutes would be like the normal. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I checked in a little bit in the morning, a uh, little in the afternoon, and then, you know, at night uh, after my children were asleep, you know, just kind of keeping an eye. And then also I think it's it's kind of habitual, not only for people who are news junkies, but because the nature of the administration that, we're living under right now has been that so much craziness happens at any given minute that I was, part of me was just like, what do they have up their sleeve for Thanksgiving? Like, what are they going to do? And you kind of don't want to fall behind. I mean, there've been times right. where I've been away for like two hours and I come back and I go, oh, Comey was fired. You know, something right. like that happens. <laughs> right. Those kind of things. I imagine that this is a little bit different for you because you're someone who has a much clearer vantage point about the norms of government than just a kind of average, even average engaged citizen would have. Maybe, maybe. Um, part of the, the problem for people like you and me, you know, you write about the news and about politics and about what's going on in the country and in the world, and I speak about it. There's a limit to how much time I can take off. I can maybe take a couple of hours <laughs> off, but I know that the following week, I'm going to have to talk about all the crazy stuff that went on. Right. So there's, there's kind of no escape. So right. we, are, we are trapped. So let me ask you this question. Who is the president-elect? Okay, is this a trick question? No. I just want to is confirm drum for roll? everybody. <laughs> is it a drum roll in the background? Uh, I'm going to go with Joe Biden. You're going to go with Biden. I think, that's the, Biden. I think that's the correct answer. Let me ask you mm -hmm. now a very easy question. 
how did Joe Biden win both the nomination and then the election? Take all the so, time you need. <laughs> so, you know, the most basic point of it, you know, was get more votes than the other guy or the other women, you know? Yeah. And I think there were some things that facilitated him getting the nomination that were different than the things that facilitated him winning the election. And, you know, what I mean by that is that for lots of reasons, people seem to believe that everyone had to run as a kind of Bernie Sanders progressive and, you know, or at least frame themselves as that. And so, you know, Biden, and I guess to a certain extent, Buttigieg, uh, were really in the moderate centrist lane. And, you know, there was a reasoning that if the Republican Party had gone kind of far to the right, that gave Democrats room to go far to the left, you know, especially on uh, the economy and income inequality and health care and, you know, those kinds of things. And I think at the same time, there were lots of voters, particularly in Biden's case, African-American voters, who were wary of that idea. You know, looking at what happened in 2016, a significant slice of the, at least the primary electorate, was thinking we want the most palatable candidate possible. The person that is, you know, inoffensive to the most people. And, you know, quite frankly, I think there were people who had a concern that after having nominated an African-American man, and then a woman, uh, that the Democratic Party was, that these kind of barrier-breaking candidates were uh, going to necessarily face headwinds. I don't agree with that reasoning necessarily, but I think that that was how people saw um, the question. And so for for Joe Biden, uh, you know, once South Carolina happened, it was pretty much over. And it also brought up the other question. I was in South Carolina, and one of the things that seemed to be after the case was maybe the early primaries, maybe Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, you know, ginned up a lot of drama and a lot of cliffhanger kinds of interest, but they didn't really reflect what the bigger electorate was like. You know, certainly the very few uh, voters of color in either of those states. And Biden, the key to his victory in the primaries was that. I think that's why he said that in that speech. The African-American community stood up again for me. And I was like, yeah. okay, there you have it. That line is going to be quoted <laughs> by people on the left and on the right you know, for pretty much for the next four years, no matter what else happens. Do you think anybody else in the Democratic field could have beaten Trump, or do you think all of them could have? I don't know. Um, you have to give an opinion, sir. I was going to say, <laughs> I was, I was gonna, I think, you can't get away with that. You can't get away with humility in the face I of a that, hypothetical that is unanswerable. I know. I think that. If there's no Biden in that race, Bernie Sanders might actually have a more viable shot than he did in the, the long term. And then outside of that, I think some other centrist, might, people might have had more interest in other centrist figures uh, who didn't get, uh, you know, strong enough support in the first go round. You know, Kamala Harris, it, the, the interesting dynamic you know, with her, which is that her candidacy stalled, you know, came out of the gate like gangbusters and then stalled. Uh, and, you know, it seemed like people, she got, even among African-American voters, she didn't get a, a whole lot of support. 
But then when she was added to the Biden ticket, Biden's support went through the ceiling yeah. uh, along with his donations. And I think that that was saying that people just on the face of it liked Kamala Harris. They just didn't necessarily feel comfortable with what other people would do if she was leading the ticket. But if there's no Biden there, then maybe people can kind of get around that question and support her. Uh, and the other thing is that you know Pete Buttigieg, um, for the criticism he got from African Americans, you know, specifically around policing issues, you know, weirdly enough, might have immunized him. In now he had other kind of things that would have been, you know, political difficulties, but it might have immunized him from the blowback of the whole, you know, defund the police uh, kind of thing. Uh, and so he may have been, and, and also just given the fact that he is incredibly good on his feet as the hosts of Fox News are now aware of. And, uh, you know, I don't know why you would want to be in a room with other people if you were contagious with a deadly disease and you care about other sure. people. But maybe the president doesn't care about other people. I think he could have been a stronger candidate in the long run as well. You mentioned South Carolina. And obviously one of the big things that happened in South Carolina before that primary was legendary Congressman Representative James Clyburn coming out in support of Biden. And lots of people credit Clyburn with turning the tide for Biden. I know Joe. We know Joe. But most importantly, Joe knows us. That's right. How important do you think that was, both to the white community and the black community? I think that that uh, Jim Clyburn is an old school political figure that as a voice of authority in, in South Carolina, certainly the voice of political authority in South Carolina, you don't get much stronger than his. Uh, and I also think that the way that he endorsed Biden was significant uh, because uh, he, uh, Jim Clyburn, Congressman Clyburn, had recently lost his wife, you know, of, of many, many years and he framed his endorsement of Joe Biden in terms of what his wife would want him to do. And I think that her memory and the fact that he is a sympathetic figure at that moment, you know, grieving, really, I mean, you can't buy that kind of endorsement. And, you know, I think that had a great deal to do with uh, you know, people's perspective on him. Now, that notwithstanding, I think that Biden was probably always going to be a strong candidate in South Carolina. And, you know, Clyburn added to that. And there's another thing that Biden did that I think, at least in the Charleston area, maybe beyond the Charleston area, did a lot for his candidacy, which is that, you know, the night of the, I think it was the CNN town hall, there was a conversation, uh, Reverend Anthony Thompson, who I met when I was in Charleston covering the murders at the Emanuel AME Church, Reverend Thompson is the widower of Myra Thompson, who was one of the victims in that shooting. And uh, when Barack Obama came and gave the eulogy for Reverend Clemente Pinckney, you know, that was not long after Bo Biden had died. Right. And uh, Joe Biden went to the church you know, as part of the official uh, you know, services you know, with the president. Uh, but what most people don't know is that he went back to the church just as a person beset with grief you know, seeking solace. And he, Reverend Thompson, stood up and, you know, posed a question to Joe Biden about his faith and the role that his faith played. And there was a moment there which was really incredible. It was just these two people 
who are survivors of profound loss empathizing with each other. And for Charleston and for Black South Carolina, where what happened in Emmanuel is still very much an open wound, I just thought that people connected with that. Like, it was not the kind of thing that you can create as political theater. Uh, These were just two people who understood what it meant to be in a really deep well of grief and have to find your way out of it. What was the feel when you were in South Carolina? leading up to the primary? Like, how, how, did, how were people talking about the race? What was the expectation? Was it excitement? Was it, you know, sort of resignation that we're going to No, have? there was a lot of excitement. Yeah. Um, and I found that South Carolina voters take their primary position very seriously. Uh, and, you know, I saw that. I was in South Carolina in 08, uh, actually 07, uh, when Obama was running. And there's a big question of whether he or Clinton would win South Carolina. And, you know, being the third, you know, primary, they are you know, kind of very keyed in with what's going on with all of the candidates and, you know, how South Carolina has the first chance for a significant African-American vote to weigh in on, you know, what they think about the primaries. And so, you know, this time was no different. You know, I was talking to someone recently who's involved in politics and has run campaigns who said about Jim Clyburn that, he thought that Jim Clyburn is the smartest politician in America. And Mm. so I I wonder what you think about that. Mm. But then also how much you think Jim Clyburn speaks for the black community as it stands now. Obviously, no community is monolithic, but Mm -hmm. what do you think his role, do you you agree with the assessment of his savviness? And and what do you think of his position in the community? Oh, certainly. (laughs) Clyburn um, didn't get to where he was by being anybody's fool. Yeah. But in terms of his voice, now, I mean, there's an, another figure, you know, who Clyburn has always reminded me of in some way, which is Charlie Rangel, yeah. you know, the longtime New York congressman, you know, also powerful figure, you know, in the halls of Congress. And but for a few things could have been ways and means share, uh, you know, but Wrangell was a kind of unparalleled political power in Harlem. But if you ever visited Harlem, (laughs) there was a huge amount of dissent uh, and people who were younger generations who viewed things differently than he did. Um, He had at some point just a kind of automatic machine to return him to office uh, pretty reliably. But that didn't mean that it was necessarily a reflection of his own popularity within the district or I should say a kind of unanimous adoration of him within the district. And I think the same thing is with Clyburn, especially as it relates to kind of more progressive voices. Uh, and so, you know, when, you know, he said, for instance, that he thought that uh, defunding the, you know, calls for defunding the police, uh, you know, the Democrats needed to move away from that kind of thing. There was a whole resounding kind of roar of dissent. Many of these from those arguments from young black voters and activists uh, who think of him as an establishment figure who is, you know, too centrist for their tastes and so on. You know, and, and you know, that's a kind of criticism that people would almost anticipate, you know, for him. And his district in South Carolina is his district in South Carolina. It's not necessarily what, you know, African American, what Maxine Waters district looks like in Los Angeles you know, or what Sheila Jackson Lee's district uh, looks like in Texas or, you know, any of these other longstanding uh, representatives who have different communities as well. That's exactly what I was getting at when I was asking about Clyburn, because a lot of Democrats, particularly white Democrats, 
pointed to Clyburn as some kind of, you know, fixture in the black community for the reason they could say defund the police is not a good slogan, is not a good idea, depending on what you think it means. And what's the response from Democrats who, you know, subscribe to those points of view? And they say, well, talk to young black people. It's not quite the same. Yeah, it's not. It's not. But I I need to clarify something, just, you know, being a historian um, for a second. And and also as a journalist, the, the journalist point I'll make is that the first people to ever talk to me about defunding the police before there was that terminology, it, it, in terms of languaging or me- political messaging, that is a terrible phrase. Uh, you know, partly because of its, and mostly because of its ambiguity. Yes, but, I agree with you on that. I want to be right. on the record that I agree. But the the first people to ever talk to me about the idea behind defund the police were, in fact, police. You know, when we were doing the first documentary we did about Newark and police reform, there were a bunch of cops who said to us, uh, you know, we do too many things. People have us doing too many things. Um, And we should be doing law enforcement, you know, stuff. But, you know, why are we being called if there's a mental health issue or why are we being called? Like they are basically... Cat in the tree. Exactly. They're the catch-all, you know, group. And... You know, one officer said to me memorably, he said, people are pissed off at us, you know, for all the things that we do that that they don't like, you know, the way they turn out. But they're never pissed off at the person who is in an office suite somewhere sending us out to do those things. And he was talking about elected officials were like, this is how we're going to, you know, run the city or what role the police are going to serve here. So that's just something that, I came across in my journalistic work. But, you know, as a historian, one of the other things that is important to remember is that the first references I saw, or earliest references I saw to what could be referred to as defunding the police were in the Kerner Commission report from 1968. And, you know, those were very middle-of-the-road liberals, kind of very establishment, institutional liberal figures. And, you know, they said that, you know, when you interface with the police in lots of different contexts, it's likely that problems will arise and that there should be uh, what they called neighborhood service centers that could handle non-law enforcement concerns so that you didn't have for every single problem a person with a gun that you call. And that was, in essence, what it's it's been taken up as a kind of it's interesting that it has been taken up as a progressive cause because 30 years ago 40 years ago that idea was much closer to the center yeah i mean it's it's an interesting thing depending on how you argue the point people will say well you know people who are black often end up in the crosshairs and there's a there's a documented you know statistical difference between how often a black person is shot by police versus a white person even taking into account demographics and population. And some people will say, well, you know, that's a reason why we need to do something about the police. And other will, others will say, well, who tends to call the police? Lots of black people in cities where there mm-hmm. are crime problems. And I don't know if you can reconcile those two points of view. We're going forward, you know, in your doing those documentaries and studying the issue, both seem to be a little bit true, are they not? They are. They totally are both true. And I'll go even further that, you know, when we were in Newark, you know, talking with the mayor, Raz Baraka, who is someone, you know, I've known since college. We were protesting against apartheid together at Howard University in the 1980s, you know, protesting against 
many acts of police brutality as young activists. He became the mayor. And, you know, when people talked about abolishing the police, he said, that's something that safe people, I think he referred to it as a bourgeois idea that safe people um, would come up with. (laughs) And, you know, he has no illusions. His father was nearly beaten to death in the course of the 1967 uprising in Newark, beaten, nearly beaten to death by police. You know, he is not unfamiliar with the problems with very many police departments as it relates to African-Americans. Also, very familiar with you know, what is on the other side of that? You know, nobody we talk to, you know, when we go to the middle-class communities, to housing projects, to like, we were there for 10 months. We found zero support for abolishing police. And, you know, people recognize that, you know, it is just a reality. Danger is a reality. And, you know, they have to rely on police in particular ways. The problem comes when they're saying that you have no choice uh, between you either have to deal with crime because you you don't want to call the police because who knows what will happen if the police come, you know, or you just accept that police are going to do things that violate your rights and that the entire community has a kind of hostile relationship. So, uh, we, you know, with law enforcement. And so it, it seems that there's a false dichotomy between those two things, but it's been useful for, for people on particular extremes of those questions to not ever move beyond that. And I mean that, you know, we talk with police unions that seem to be constitutionally incapable of ever admitting that there are problems with the way that police approach black communities. Although, uh, with respect to police unions, do they, I would think that they would have the view of the people you were talking about from the 60s that, that members, you know, their rank and file members should be doing less. So on that, is there some, some common ground? You know, we've talked with, it is in time, of course, of my work, talked with a few different people on this. And I have to say, I don't really, I've never gotten much on the sense of we want police to have a smaller footprint. It's generally, we want police to have a higher base pay. (laughs) And And, and not a lot of discipline. And not a lot of discipline, you know, and we want, you know, these particular things. But the, the particulars of how you approach like smart policing, you're much more likely to find that with police chiefs you know, who are paid to think about those questions. And I think police unions are very often much more about the logistics of, you know, representing a group of city employees, you know, who have particular interests. And so, yeah, I I think that doesn't register, at least in my experience, does not register very high, you know, on those lists of concerns. Can I ask you this question? It's a delicate one. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think the following phenomenon takes place, and if so, with what frequency? And that is, white activists take a position on behalf of the black community. Oh, Lord. <laughs> and without really consulting with the black community. Yeah. Discuss. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. We've all been there. Uh, we have all been in the please stop helping moment. Um, <laughs> like, describe some of those moments and, and what you mean by that. So before this summer, you know, where we saw a lot of this. And even in Portland, you know, where, um, you know, my colleague at The New Yorker, Luke Mogelson, uh, wrote a really interesting, uh, insightful piece about the distance between Antifa and uh, Black Lives Matter in Portland. You know, people kind of use those terms interchangeably, but a lot of times the BLM people are concerned about some of the tactical things that the Antifa people do that they will ultimately be blamed for. 
And you know, I've seen this more times than I can count. Uh, I was out covering when Troy Davis was executed, which is a terrible day. And I think this was 2012 or 2011. So men in Georgia, lots of concerns about whether or not he actually was guilty. Uh, some of the people who testified against him, you know, tried to recant and said that they were intimidated into testifying against him. And he was set to be executed for murder. And, you know, I was out there writing about it. Uh, this was in central Georgia. I lived in Atlanta at the time. And there's a group of Black protesters, a lot significant, you know, group of Black protesters, and, you know, a smattering of white protesters. And every police officer in the state of Georgia, it seemed, was down there, like, manning the barricade in front of the prison where Troy Davis was to be executed. And uh, out of nowhere, one white kid who was about 20, in his early 20s, uh, who'd been, like, up in the cops' faces and screaming, you know, he walks back, you know, to the group. There's, like, a a, a street, and the police are on one side of the street, the protesters on the other side of the street. And this is a fairly significant side street, maybe a four-lane street. And he says... Let's rush the cops and goes running headlong into the police. And I just want to say, like, all of the black people exchanged a knowing look and stood there while this guy, it, it was almost comical. So he goes like running straight into the police. Like this one cop just kind of grabs him, like the way, do you know how like with a little kid, you like put your hand, your palm on his forehead so yeah, he can't yeah, hit yeah. you? It was like <laughs> yeah. that. It was like it was like that. And they they turned him around or put him in cuffs and put him in a car. And I think that, you know, lots of murmuring happened after that. And people were just kind of like, you know, no black person would say that because we understand, like in this case, that maybe the guy humored you and put you in cuffs. That's not how that would go for us. Another thing that made the news and another story that I was covering, uh, and this was around the Trayvon Martin, you know, death and or Trayvon Martin or Ferguson, but it was a protest that was in Union Square. And there were a group of kind of white far-left demonstrators who started chanting, you know, pigs in a blanket, uh, fry them like bacon. And I I was there. As a matter of fact, I knew some of the activists uh, who were there. I was quoting people, talking to them. uh, And they were, people were saying, you know, can somebody tell those people to shut the f*** up? Like, they're going to prompt more violence out here. And, you know, sometimes, you know, in, in the case of you know, Martin Luther King, you know, there were points where you elicited a violent response because you wanted to show the world what you were dealing with. There's a tactical way of people doing that. And that's not what people were doing there, nor did it make sense to do that at that particular moment. And you certainly wouldn't do it by threatening by police officers' lives. Uh, and so that just... That happens all the time. Anyone who's covered these issues can tell you that. Any activist who's been involved in these issues can tell you that. It is just not an uncommon phenomenon at all. And is, is some of that at play in the defund the police idea as well? No, I think that you know the defund the police idea is just something that got a lot of traction from a lot of different communities who were defining the term in different ways. You know, as in we need police to have smaller budgets, police departments to have smaller budgets, which for which there is a reasonable argument. You can make a very reasonable argument for that. 
Uh, last year, the city of Chicago spent $113 million settling lawsuits. Yeah. There's no way that you can look at the city of Chicago and say that they couldn't find something better to do with $113 million. Yeah, I certainly could. Yeah. <laughs> I could find so, various ways. And so if you're saying that you need to say, like, look, we're no longer, like, the buck stops here. We're no longer going to uh, just settle these cases for egregious acts, you know, violence that are happening, you know, with, within the culture that sanctions it in police departments. I think that makes perfect sense. If you're talking about, you know, in some instances with police department budgets have exploded to being, you know, 30%, 40% of what the overall operating budgets of cities are, there's a real reason to look at that and say, is this the best expenditure of our money? And in Newark, there's a particular idea that we want to spend money to make communities safer, but they don't automatically assume that policing is the same thing as public safety. And so you have neighborhoods that are safer, and those communities don't necessarily have more police. Uh, what they tend to have is more resources. And so they're like, maybe we can deploy funds in different ways that would obviate the necessity of police coming in the first place, you know, do things that are preemptive of these kinds of problems. And I think that that's, you know, a kind of smart idea. On the other side of it, though, um, as you know, probably better than anybody else, We have 18,000 police departments in this country, and a a handful of them have these gigantic budgets, you know, kind of siphon off, you know, huge amounts of the city uh, funds. But if you're talking about the average police department that has five or six officers, that doesn't necessarily apply. Or, you know, what it takes to reform a police department, sometimes you actually need to reallocate the money to reform the department. <laughs> so it it becomes a more question a more complicated question than simply saying, you know, slash their budgets in half. Before moving on from this, I want to ask you if you agree that there seemed to be some consensus across a pretty broad spectrum in the country after the killing of George Floyd that various things had to change. And mm-hmm. my questions are: what happened to that moment? Has the moment passed? And the people who say, this bad phraseology of defund the police perhaps punctured that moment. What do you say to those folks? Yeah. So first off, I have been covering police issues for a long time, going all the way back to Amadou Diallo in New York City in 1998. Uh, And what always happens is that the people protesting look like the victim you know, whoever died. And overwhelmingly, that has been a Black person or a brown person. And the people who come out are from those communities because they're the only people who see a kind of common interest. And I remember I was writing about Diallo. I was covering a protest that was out at City Hall. And I talked to one woman, who's a white woman, who was kind of exasperated by the protest, trying to get to where she was going. And uh, I stopped and and said, you know, have you heard about the killing of Amadou Diallo, who was shot 19 times by police, unarmed person, shot 19 times by police in a vestibule of his apartment building in the Bronx. And she was familiar. And I said, so uh, what do you make of the protest? And she said, oh, I think it's overblown. I mean, uh, the police were a little heavy handed, but, you know, it's not all of this. 
And I just remember being stunned by that reply. It was like the person was shot 19 times. Yeah. And that is kind of one point. And then the diametric opposite is seeing Salt Lake City, where the Black population is something like 1%, uh, with those huge protests that took place over the summer and sustained protests that took place over the summer uh, regarding the death of George Floyd. Uh, And in lots of places across the country where there weren't a lot of people of color and people were looking around going, you know, wait, how can you kneel on someone's neck for nine minutes? Like, what what world are we living in where that is possible? And it was a shock of awakening. Now, what I think happened, I don't think the defund the police ended that moment. I think that there was a ongoing and consistent messaging about uh, protests being anarchists, <laughs> about there being the the rhetoric from the White House saying that their people are just uh, two inches from complete chaos, the scare tactics, the scaremongering, um, along with the isolated incidents in which, pe- which people did actually commit acts of violence. I think all of those things culminated in diminishing that moment. And I also think that just flat out so many other things have happened. You know, we've had to deal with another swell, two more swells of the pandemic. Uh, we had the the pitch and fervor of the presidential competition and all of the things that happened in the midst of that, uh, the kind of endless cycle of crises, and it just kind of settled back to baseline. And I don't know if there's the momentum to address, you know, those dynamics uh, in the way that there was before. I want to talk about Trump and black voters for a second. Mm-hmm. Do you do you believe the polling, the exit polling, that shows that Trump received a higher share, particularly of black male votes, than he did in 2016? Well, okay, no, I don't believe the exit polling. But I think it's possible that the polling is right, if that makes sense. Okay, um, so if it's right, what would account for it? So what what would account for it is, I think— you know, Obama, um, and my my good friend Leah Wright Rigor is like really great on this, but I think the conversation had been that there had always been a significant number of kind of black Republicans who are about about equivalent to the numbers that that Trump appears to have gotten, at least according to the exit polling. Like we don't know because of all of the particularities of this election, how accurate or inaccurate the exit polling was. And certainly the other forms of polling before the election were so far off that we shouldn't take anything on face value. But if we assume that it's accurate, it would mean that Trump got what a Republican normally gets in that kind of competition. Now, the bigger thing is, should a person who said things like, I want there to be fewer minorities in the suburbs, you know, and just (laughs) actually said that, should that person get the same share of Black voters that, you know, a George W. Bush gets. Right. And that's uh, not all he said. He said a lot of things. He tolerated a lot. Of, so the theory is, right, mm-hmm. here's a guy who liberals have said is racist and who accommodates racism and who racists like, and there's all sorts of evidence for that. And look what happened. He got a higher share. Kind of makes no sense. Although I have a theory, which, which we can talk about in a second. I think, well, here's one thing that we should kind of float. There is a certain part of the population of Black voters who think that both parties are racist, you know, and just being out, it doesn't take very long to come across those people. 
in 2016, one of the things that uh, I was, and I hate if this sounds like I'm stealing the Tom Friedman line, but it really did happen <laughs> in a taxi. I, I really, <laughs> I was in a taxi and this was in Oakland, actually. It was in Oakland ahead of the election. I was covering the anniversary of the Black Panther Party founding. And I talked to this guy about the election and I asked him, you know, what he's thinking about. And he he said he was thinking about Trump and uh, he wanted to know what I was thinking about. And I said, look, I'm from Queens. Uh, we've known about Donald Trump for my entire life. And I've always thought that he was a racist. And this dude said to me, so you're trying to tell me that Hillary Clinton is not? And I just was like, that's it. That's it. There are a lot of people who think like that guy. Look, there are a lot of people even outside the context of race thought that there was no difference between Hillary Clinton right. and Donald Trump and voted for the third party. And Susan Sarandon, you know, is one of those famous people. So yeah, I guess you're right. There's a category of people who are so disenfranchised and isolated from both parties that it doesn't really matter to them so much. So they don't see the distinction. Mm -hmm. So that's, I guess, one, one explanation. I was hearing somebody very smart recently make a different point. I don't know if this is a controversial point or not. It probably is. That part of what is going on is not an issue of black or white, but is an issue of masculinity mm -hmm. versus femininity, right? Mm -hmm. And this person said, and I present it without opinion, as I do all things <laughs> on the mm -hmm. podcast, is if I can, this person was saying, to the extent progressives keep trying to demonize what lots of men think is traditional maleness and trying to characterize all those things as quote unquote toxic masculinity, you're going to lose a lot of black and brown men mm -hmm. from your party. Do you have a view of that? Yeah, I don't know what they mean by a lot, you know, because those ideas have been out and around for a while. But we have tended as voters, African-Americans, to vote more along our interests, concrete interests, than kind of cultural ones. And even on other kind of divisive issues, African-Americans are you know, very, you know, have a higher level of, of participation in you know, the church than the standard the general population, but have been loyal Democratic voters despite having complicated feelings about abortion. And it has been much more, I think, about you know, bread and butter issues and like how to better your community. And you know, the, the Democratic vote has been, I think it's more likely that those people wind up becoming non-voters uh, because the Republican Party has you know, it was, this is partly a story of Democrats winning the Black vote in the last third of the 20th century, and partly a story of the GOP abandoning it or really ushering it out, you know, pushing the Black vote out of that party. Uh, and so, you know, the kind of push and pull for it. I don't, I don't think that those voters are necessarily, I don't, I'll say, I don't think there's necessarily a large pool of voters who are pissed off about the kind of toxic masculinity thing but love the idea of, you know, Charlottesville and they're great people on both sides. But sometimes just a few votes, even just a few percentage points sure. can make a difference. Sure. Now, I, I will say that I think that, that masculinity idea is completely true. And one of the things that people who remember Trump from the 80s and 90s will recall is that Trump was a fixture in the kind of black celebrity scene with rappers and... I was just about to ask you about that. Yeah. I, I want to ask you specifically about something that I'm sure you saw Barack Obama said in his interview with The Atlantic mm -hmm. when asked about this issue of some black men defecting to Trump. 
and I know you've written a lot about rap and hip hop and have thought about it. So Obama says, quote, I have to remind myself that if you listen to rap music, it's all about the bling, the women, the money. A lot of rap videos are using the same measures of what it means to be successful as Donald Trump is. Mm -hmm. Everything is gold-plated. That insinuates itself and seeps into the culture, end quote. Mm -hmm. Your reaction? Okay, so there's a lot there. But one thing, <laughs> there is. I wrote a kind of satirical piece before I knew how significant the candidacy was. I wrote a satirical piece in The New Yorker called Donald Trump is a Rapper. And, you know, in it, I said uh, he drapes himself with, surrounds himself with excessive amounts of gold. Uh, he treats women as accessories, and he has his own fashion line. If you have those three things, you're a rapper. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, right. and um, you know, part of what uh, Barack Obama is talking about represents a certain slice of hip-hop culture. Uh, I don't like the kind of totalizing idea of it. You know, it's not the entirety of the culture. You know, and he is savvy enough as a kind of consumer of culture to, to know that. And I, I don't think that he views it reductively, but... I would say that there is a part of the culture that does resonate in that way and that does reflect the kind of ideas that Donald um, Trump uh, has mainstreamed. And, and for that matter, I think that a lot of working class men would express, you know, because you know, what hip hop was really articulating was in, in very many instances, a fundamentally working class perspective on life, work, success, women, sex, you know, money and so on, um, status. And it was an idea that you could probably find corollaries for in other working class communities, just not with somebody rapping, you know, over a beat about it. And so I think that there is that shared sense of masculinity that Trump tapped into. Now, of course, it was a very weird kind of idea because like very many things in politics, it's much more about the image than the actual substance because, you know, nobody who has actually been around tough guys really thinks Donald Trump is a tough guy. Really, tough guys don't whine nonstop and express right, grievance exactly. 24 and, hours a day. And also, I mean, the funny thing about this was, I kind of think about this, Trump grew up in Jamaica Estates and I grew up in South Jamaica. And for people who are listening who are not familiar with New York, those two neighborhoods have exactly the relationship you would suspect based upon their names. <laughs> you know, Jamaica right. Estates is at the top of the hill. South Jamaica is at the bottom of the hill. Jamaica Estates was elite, uh, overwhelmingly white. You know, South Jamaica was working class, working poor, black and brown people. And uh, just constitutionally, I've never been able to think of anybody from Jamaica Estates as a tough guy. I was like, come on the <laughs> other side of Liberty Avenue. Come to the other side of Liberty Avenue and I will show you some tough guys. <laughs> what do you make of this discussion that people are having in the aftermath of the election in which people are saying, look, 73 million people or, or some odd number mm -hmm. voted for Trump. We need to understand the Trump voters. We need to understand how so many people could vote for a person who has these views and who says these things and acts in this particular way. That rankles some people. Like, why don't those, why don't those voters understand or make an attempt to understand the 80 million mm -hmm. larger number who voted for Biden, many of whom are in the cities. People in cities get demonized all the time. But, you know, in the, in the pages of elite magazines, often it's the case that the discussion instead turns to, well, what's going on in the middle of the country and in rural areas? What, what do you make of that discussion? What do we need to learn and, and how should we go about that? I mean, I think it's it's frustrating in one regard because if you're talking about 
um, policy analysis or uh, demography or like any of the things that we do anytime there's an election to understand how a vote breaks down, how a particular slice of the electorate thinks, you know, why people are motivated to do particular things. Sure, that is no more or less pressing now than it would be in any election. But the underlying sentiment that they represent a group of people who have been wronged or who somehow have lacked for a forum, you know, within the culture, the broader society, it's frustrating, you know, because what typically happens is, you know, that's the first part of it. The other part of it is the belief that people have paid too much attention to the issues of people of color and that the attention, the concerns of these communities have come at the expense, you know, of paying attention to issues that relate to people of color. Eventually, if you continue far enough in that conversation, someone says the dreaded phrase, it's class, not race, at at which point the only reasonable response is to get up from the table and walk away. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's all of those things. And, you know, we can say that there's a particular kind of analysis uh, that, you know, needs to happen. But I also think, and I talk with my students about this, that getting someone's perspective does not necessarily equate agreeing that this person is right. Yeah. So there are objective things. Like, outside of the, the kind of policy things, I people know my politics. It's not hard to know my politics as... Uh, you know, David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker, says, you know, your politics should be hidden on your sleeve. You know, um, <laughs> And so people know where I'm coming from. But I, I thought I had a kind of working understanding of the ground rules of American politics, which Trump blew up. So do we really need to understand people sympathetically how they were able to reconcile Donald Trump making fun of a disabled reporter. He did that at the very beginning of his political career. He did. And that people were okay with that. And, you know, is it necessary to understand how people are okay with things like firing inspector generals who are just there to prevent corruption? They're not there to advance anyone's interest, anyone's partisan agenda, but to make sure that we do not have corruption and rot within the government. You know, just fundamental, basic things. Like, we can say we disagree about where the furniture should be placed in the house or what kind of furniture we should have or even if we should have this house. We can debate all those things. What we can't debate is whether or not you get to knock down a load-bearing wall. And so while you see the person gleefully kicking holes in the wall, the reaction should be, we have to stop this from happening, as opposed to, well, we have to understand why people want to collapse this wall. Right. I guess in in politics, the thinking probably goes for the pragmatic people. You know, as as you said at the beginning, very wisely, you know, how did Joe Biden win? You got got more votes. You got to get more votes than the other guy. And if the enterprise in politics is getting more votes than the other guy— you got to figure out why some so many votes went to the other guy last time so you can steal some of them back. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think that that's fine. If, if we're framing this in the sense of the kind of analysis that happens anytime you have an election. But I think the bigger cultural point is not about that. Yeah. You know? No, it's I think the, that's right. Think it's that's the right. hillbilly elegy kind of, you know, sepia-tinted. Uh, and, and another thing I'll say about this is like, 
there's a real problem with the extent to which, and this is kind of data that's pointed to this, the extent to which white people believe themselves to be the most disadvantaged group in American society. And that is flat out statistically untrue. But there are so many people who believe that. And so you can get to understanding part of what Trump's appeal was, and it still doesn't necessarily give you anything that you want to replicate, you know, with that electorate. I want to talk about Obama for a second. So his book is out. I know he's very competitive with Michelle, so it took him a little extra time to write it. It's 700 pages. Yep. Which by my calculation makes it almost as long as a New Yorker article. (laughs) (laughs) So that's about half the length. Every time I have a New Yorker person on, I got to make a joke about the Mm -hmm. length of your pieces. A, have you read it? And B, I want to quote back to you something you said not long ago on television about Obama's best lesson for Joe Biden. You said it's that, quote, moderation won't save you, end quote. Mm -hmm. What do you make of Obama's legacy, the book, if you've had a chance to look at it? And what do you mean by moderation won't save you? I just got the book, so I haven't cracked it. Um, I planned to start it over Thanksgiving and didn't get, didn't get around to it. But Because you were eating. Yeah, exactly. I was eating and, <laughs> and writing and trying to finish another project, which I'll tell you is kind of comical aside to what you said on the New York about The New Yorker. Uh, I'm working on a project, an editing project, of some of the older articles that were in the uh, magazine with David Rimnick and... One of the things that I found was like when you go back, the older pieces were, I'm literally not joking, roughly triple the length of the ones that run now. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so it really was like, you know, reading a book. <laughs> um, that said, you know, on the moderation issue, I think that Barack Obama in 2007 understood some things about race that the overwhelming majority of Black people in this country did not understand. And that was why he saw a path to being elected. You know, my running joke ever since then has been, if you had done a poll in 2007 asking if it was possible for a Black person to be elected president, everyone would have said no, except for four people, and they all lived at the same address in the south side of Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) All all with the last name Obama. All with the last name Obama. Um, And so he understood something that I think most people didn't know. But when he was elected, I think that flipped, that Black America at large understood some things that I think the Obama administration struggled to pick up. And that was that they were not opposed to his policies. They were opposed to him. We had seen this phenomenon before. You know, these were the people who were threatening to kill Hank Aaron so that he couldn't break Babe Ruth's home run record. You know, it wasn't about the home run record. It was about Hank Aaron. And so the mere existence of a Black man in proximity to the presidential seal was too much for some people. And they reacted in ways that were not all that unpredictable. You know, going so far as even to demand that, you know, he prove that he was a citizen so that he was eligible to vote in the election that he actually won. Right. You know, all these kind of absurdities and indignities that were heaped upon him. And I think that his life, at least as we understood in Dreams from My Father and, and Audacity of Hope, had led him to believe that there was always a pragmatic alternative. There was always a way to be above the fray. 
And, you know, you have to first demonstrate the other one of Barack Obama's underappreciated virtues and assets was the fact that he had been a professor. Time and time again, I had this conversation with other professors. He approached his campaign the way a professor would. When people would raise a question, he would look at the question from all possible dimensions, sort out the ones that were unworkable or unfeasible, and then come up with an answer that took all of those things into account. And And then class was over. By that time, class was over. By that time, class was over, (laughs) right. Right. That's part of the problem. That's part of the problem. And and so it it was why he didn't, you know, soundbite as much. You know, he was thoughtful in those ways and really kind of ran this like a a seminar. You know, listening to him was like a, a knowledgeable professor in a seminar. That's great. Except that there was not always, like, people weren't operating on positions of principle. So if they took up the stance opposite you, it wasn't a good faith position. And when they tried to do this, you know, to try to find a moderate middle ground, you know, this above the fray with Merrick Garland, and that went nowhere. When they tried to do that on climate change, it's like, oh, we'll give some concessions, uh, and that'll give Republicans an incentive to come down, you know, somewhere to the left of where they would be normally, uh, and ultimately we'll wound up in the middle. And that didn't happen. You know, on immigration, you know, one of the rationales was that the number of deportations that took under took place under Obama was that he was trying to tack to the right to give Republicans room to tack to the left. That never happened. And, you know, even the point where he was going through the conversation with Chuck Grassley about what he could get on health care, like what kind of bill could you vote for? And they were like, we, none. 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 So Joe Biden should not go down the path of moderation in your view? Well, I should say this. If he goes on the path of moderation, it should be because that is the best and on a particular issue, because that is the most viable path, but not because... Not for strategic default, reasons. Right, exactly. Not for, for strategic reasons. Right. Uh, that there may be reasons that you need to tack to the left on some issue. There may be, uh, but as a kind of general presumption that you can navigate, you know, between the shoals of left and right, you know, right down the center... Uh, I don't think that that's reasonable. And the other thing that uh, about discrediting the election, which was the equivalent of birtherism, having instilled in people's minds the idea that Joe Biden did not win the election, that he cheated, he can now be viewed as an illegitimate president and treated essentially the same way that Barack Obama was. And so I think that they should go into it with that kind of presumption. Jelani Kabba kept you way longer than you were obligated to be on the show, but I really thank you. It was a real treat. Thanks for being on. Thank you for the invitation. My conversation with Jelani Cobb continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. Try out the membership free for two weeks. Head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jelani Cobb. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-247-PREET. Or 
you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.